Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. It feels like I haven't been back in a while, but I don't know why. Maybe it's because today is almost like a real-time podcast because today is Monday and you're going to get this podcast on Monday, which is very rare. It was very important that I do this interview with the person I'm sitting across from who I haven't seen arguably in probably a decade or maybe longer. Easily. It's Chris Thompson, in my humble opinion, one of the most incredibly talented and gifted writers of my generation. And he's a guy who, when I'm around, I always feel happy, I always feel warm inside, and I always feel privileged to be around him. And I'll tell you why. And this cold open is going to be very, very unique from other cold opens because it's going to go a few different ways. I can feel I never know what I'm going to say. And before I go into this, I should say this. First of all and foremost, all of you out there that listen to this podcast, thank you so, so much. You have put us on the map and it's all you that do it. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's incredible. That's not me kissing. That's Chris. It's amazing the response and the comments and the feedback. I can't even begin to tell you how incredible it's been. Everywhere I go, people stop me. I don't know how they know me. I was in a parking lot once within the past six months. I don't even know if I've told this story. I'm valeting my car. I say, thanks, man. And I'm walking away and he say, he's running after me. He's like, Mr. Katz. 
is that you, Mr. Katz? And I'm like, what? Yes, how do, how do, you, how do you know me? Was my name on the key? No, man, I just, uh, I recognize your voice from the podcast. So thank you all very much. But enough about me, enough about you, and a lot about Chris Thompson. So I want to tell you about this guy. I first met Chris Thompson, as you probably know. I'll say that him and Joel Silver were trying to convince Jay Moore to do the show Action. And if you're a listener of this podcast, you know the story over and over again. Jay and I are in Joel Silver's office with Chris Thompson, and they are trying to convince Jay to do a show called Action. Although it didn't necessarily go the way they had planned, and it was a very bizarre meeting with Matrix trailers playing, posters shaking on the walls, Joel Silver never sitting down and pacing back and forth saying, I can't believe you're not going to do the show, to Chris Thompson in the corner sweating like Mike Tyson at a spelling bee, wondering what's going to happen, how is it going to happen, but somehow imparted in Jay this voice of reason when Joel Silver was going back and forth with the craziness. It almost well, it was almost like a yin and yang thing where you had the stabilizing force, apparently, of Chris Thompson and the craziness of Joel Silver. And so we were sitting, we were talking, and at the end of the move at the end of the meeting, after some insults were thrown back and forth and Jay insulted Joel Silver by saying that hey, look, you did Xanadu. And Joel said, I'm fucking proud of Xanadu. It was a unique meeting. It ended up where Jay decided to do the show. And one of the unique and interesting things I'll share in this cold open with you people is that I was thrust into something that I never was a part of before. I had always been told that if you represent a great artist as a manager, you can be a part of the process and you'll be allowed to be a part of the process and you can also become an executive producer on a show when, technically speaking, it could be argued very vehemently that you have no fucking right on the set of that show. You don't even belong on that show getting coffee, let alone being an executive producer. When you want an artist to do a show, you want to do anything to help them get on the show. And they made me an offer as an executive producer, and they told Jay that he would have me there and I would be there and able to be protect him and be a part of the process and he would feel more comfortable. And Jay had a chance to be an executive producer at the time as well, but for a very interesting and unique reason, which would never happen today to anybody, he turned it down. He told me, look, Barry, I just want you there I want to just be an actor. I don't want to have to worry about any other ramifications of things or how the mechanisms work or be involved in the decision-making process. I trust Chris as a writer, and I just want to get the words, and I want to do a great job, and that's all. And I'll become an executive producer over and over again if things go well and, and don't worry about it. But the point being is that I was made an executive producer on this show and I was walking down the hallways and the lot with Chris Thompson who I considered to be brilliant Don Rio who was like the rock of Gibraltar and one of the you know most well-respected executive producers out there Joel Silver who 
was like probably the largest movie producer in the world at the time and probably still is one of the top 10. And the late Ted Demme, who was just one of the greatest and most talented directors on the planet. And me. And the thing that always struck me about Chris Thompson that blew me away, because he was also had another pilot that was picked up at the same time called Ladies Man with Alfred Molina. And they set two sound stages. He had two sets of writers. And he was walking back and forth doing a CBS-type show with one group of writers, which was a little bit, I'll just say, more mainstream. And then he was working on another show that was incredibly edgy right across and going back and forth and trying to produce two shows at the same time and running two shows, which to this day is one of the most difficult tasks there is. But with all the stress that he was going through, he never, ever treated me like I wasn't a person that belonged. He always engaged me. He always asked me to do things. He always talked to me about the process. I don't know how. I don't know why. He might have, in under his breath, said, oh, fuck that fucking guy. I can't believe he's hanging around here. But it never showed he never treated me that way, and it trickled down to every single person that worked there, from Don Rio to Jim Vallely to the two young writers, Jessup and Silverstein, who uh, created the show Drawn Together later on in Comedy Central. And that's something I always remembered about Chris. And I always say this for anybody who listens, treat people with respect, whether they're the craft service table, the person who helps you move, the, the guy who carries the lights or the electricity or in any form of, of business you're in. Just treat everybody great and you'll be in good shape. But the thing also about Chris that was very difficult for me was the paradox of Chris Thompson, a guy who made me feel comfortable made me feel wonderful. Everybody, every time a script was written, you read the script and you couldn't fucking believe how incredible it was and how edgy it was. Sometimes there'd be scripts that would have five pages of dialogue for Jay Moore in a courtroom scene or something, something unprecedented. It was a show that had so many different firsts. But you could always feel that Chris was like this guy who was a paradox. He was a guy who was a genius and brilliant and many times had that light where he could walk into a room and he was just so, just made people feel so happy and so special. And there were other times when it felt like he was a guy on the edge, a guy ready to just, you know, call it a day. A guy who literally you wouldn't be surprised if he went to a store and bought a handgun and said, fuck it, this is all over, I'm done with this shit. And I never knew when I worked with him whether he was sober, whether he wasn't sober, whether he was losing his mind, whether he wasn't, because on any given day, he'd be up writing till 3, 4 in the morning, and pages would come in the morning for a scene that you were doing that day, and they were amazing, and they were brilliant. But the actors, a lot of times, were in a situation like Saturday Night Live, where you were given brilliant dialogue, but you were given it 
not that much notice because he was doing two shows. And in the end, you really trust yourself to know what's right. You have a team around you, but you also want to be the one who touches the pages and knows that you have the final look-see on it. And when you don't get sleep and you don't get the proper rest and you're burning the candle at both ends, you're in a situation where things have a habit of self-destructing. And one of the things I found about Chris that he never showed it to me. He never showed it to Jay. We never really saw anything. But you got the feeling that the weight and the pressure of the success of not only having one show but two was just too much of an enormous burden to bear. And one of the things I wanted to share is the fact that a lot of times what happens in your career, if you're fortunate enough, is to have success and to be able to handle the success and be able to make it all work. And a lot of times, believe it or not, shockingly in our lives, we're cursed with double the success or triple the success when we're not expecting it. And you can never plan to have two shows that you're doing. You can never plan to have 44 episodes in one season that you're responsible for doing for network television. And when you're giving that responsibility, it's daunting. And so as you move through your career out there, know that obviously you're driving for success. But when you get to that point when you are successful, make sure that you're in a situation where you feel comfortable, you have a great team around you, and you know in your heart that you can handle the workload and be able to put it together and deal with these network executives or whoever is at your company giving you notes or things that you're like, why am I taking a note from this person? Why am I in a situation where this person at the law firm is telling me what to do? I'm the shining star here. But in every situation and success, just know that there are so many variables coming at you to try to take you down. There's no doubt in my mind that if Chris Thompson were left to his own devices on those two shows and all these people around him who were driving him crazy would have left him alone, I think those two shows would have been on the air. And if he stayed the straight and narrow and went the path that I know he wanted to go on, I know he knows what was capable of those two shows because they both were great. And so... That, to me, is the point I want to make, and we're going to talk a lot about it today. But listen, when you get success, know <laughs> that it's something daunting, and it's very difficult. Most people say, and Chris would be the first one to say it, it's not difficult getting a show on the air. It's difficult keeping a show on the air. It's not really difficult finding and getting success What's difficult for all of you out there, if you can make it happen, is keeping the success going and making it work and using the formulas that will take you where you want to go. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, 
or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You're firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening and passing on these podcasts that hopefully have inspired you to get to the next level. If you ever get the chance, I would be honored if you went to my website, barrycats.com slash podcast. And if you ever feel like buying anything on Amazon, just click on my Amazon banner, buy whatever you want. Just by doing that, it helps put my kids through college because every dollar goes to my kids college education it doesn't cost you anything and it helps support me and the show if you get a chance to do that i'd be touched and very grateful welcome back to another episode of industry standard with me barry katz i am so excited i'm next to a man a myth a legend, a man who has so much artwork on his arms, uh, I can't find a piece of skin that remains untattooed. It's incredible. His name, of course, Chris Thompson, and I'm going to give him the proper introduction. So, Chris Thompson, please get a pillow, lay back, fall asleep, because this is going to be a long one. But it's going to feel good to you, because you're going to realize how great a career you've had. Chris Thompson is a television and film writer, director, producer, and executive producer who has worked on hit TV series and films nearly continuously since 1977. Chris was born in Detroit, Michigan and grew up in Los Angeles. He began his career at 23 after being discovered by a producer who was impressed by his improv skills during a performance at the Off the Wall Theater. He was soon offered an apprenticeship writing position for the series Sirotter's Court. He then wrote briefly for the ABC show Blansky's Beauties before becoming a writer and eventually an executive producer for the hit television show Laverne and Shirley, on which he worked for seven years. He also served as the head writer for the iconic series with the late Robin Williams, Mork and Mindy. He created and produced for the TV show Bosom Buddies for Paramount Studios, launching the career of then-young comedy actor Tom Hanks. 
He went on to write feature films including Back to the Beach and the Whoopi Goldberg comedy Jumping Jack Flash. He continued to write and produce for several successfully and critically acclaimed TV series over the next three decades, including creating the show Action for Fox, Ladies Man for CBS, and most recently the successful dance-driven Disney Channel teen sitcom Shake It Up. He's been enlisted as an executive consultant to punch up more shows than we have time to mention. And in his career, he has created over 20 network pilots. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, Chris Thompson. Thank you, Barry. Well, that's really embarrassing to hear. But actually pretty <laughs> accurate. Actually pretty did accurate. I, did I leave off anything? I have no idea anymore. <laughs> I have no idea what I've done. I just wish I could do something right this second. You are. You're yeah, talking to me. That's true. We could create a show together. No? No. Okay. Have you ever created a show with somebody else? Um, no, I haven't. I, I, uh, uh, from elementary school, it's always on my report card, does not work well with others. <laughs> so um, so I, I have way too gigantic an ego. To, uh, to actually uh, uh, listen to someone else and, and digest their ideas and admit at any time that their idea might be better than mine. So I'm not going to do that. So it's ridiculous to put me with anybody else in a room and try to go sell something. <laughs> On this podcast, I love to go way, way back, if you don't mind. Sure. So let's go back to Detroit, Michigan. Mm -hmm. Tell me what kind of household you grew up in, your family. Was anybody funny? And how was the socioeconomic nature of your family? And then if you'll keep going with it, tell me what the first thing was that was the inspiration for you to want to be in the entertainment business. I grew up in a very odd family. I grew up uh, um, mostly with my mom. And we were all over. We were in New York, Connecticut, uh, uh, the Virgin Islands. My mom was... Uh, I grew up, my mom, it was a lesbian household. <laughs> my mom was gay, and, and she, would, she would occasionally, well, fairly frequently, change women that we were living with, and I would wake up one morning, and there would be a different sort of chick that we were living at her house now. So uh, uh, Obviously, your mom, at some point in her life, might not have been playing on the other team because well, you were born. Well, here's the thing. My mom was in the Army where i don't know if you've heard this there are some lesbians and and she um <laughs> and she was trying to make some last stab at being straight uh married my dad they split up they went to spend a weekend together to uh, uh to try to reconcile it on jekyll island in south carolina and it went horribly my mom flew back to Detroit, never saw my father again, but turned up pregnant. So I am literally the product of the last time my mother's ever seen a penis. <laughs> and I just, I enjoyed, I came in right under the wire, right under the wire there. So I think that's... Uh, uh, that story that you just told, this is probably my 90th episode. I have never heard... An opening story like that. <laughs> that is incredible. So uh, when did you realize your mom was uh, not gay? For, not for quite a while. Not for quite a while. We always, it, it, this was the 50s and the early 60s, and 
we weren't as open as a, a society about homosexuality at all. And it was very under the table, and it was shameful, and it was hidden. And so these were my mom's roommates, as far as I, uh, as far as I knew. And it wasn't until I was like 15 where I sort of got confronted with everything in my face, where where I really sort of knew what was what was going on. What happened to get you to realize what was going on? Oh, it's this. Uh, that's uh, it's just uh, I literally caught my mom in something. It's not a it's not a pretty story. Uh, I literally caught my mom in something, and and. Uh, and, you know, and, and it was pretty obvious what was going on. The 15-year-old boys normally are the ones that get caught doing something, but this was just the opposite. Yeah. You didn't get caught doing something. You yeah. opened the door, and they hadn't locked the door. And But what it gave us is my, my mother was a very creative person. She was an artist. She supported us uh, uh, through art and, and odd jobs. We were incredibly poor. The Detroit, the way the Detroit thing comes in is that's where I was born, and that's where I used to spend the summers with my aunt and uncle and grandmother. My mom would ship me off from wherever we were living. I'd spend the summers out there with them. That was sort of the the most stable part of my life. But uh, um, but you know it was craziness. It was craziness growing up. I, I went to uh, uh, twelve elementary schools. You know that we were just always going somewhere in the middle of the night. But uh, you asked another interesting question, is what, ha what happened is after I, after I sort of figured out what was going on with my mom, I went into this sort of spasm of uh, 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 outrage uh, uh, about the whole thing, and I walked out of the house and didn't come back. And this, we were living in Hollywood. What age? At the time. Just 15, like 15, 16, right in there, just turning. So you left home out. at 15. How did you have money to go anywhere with? Well, I didn't. I, I got, uh, um, I, uh, I was slightly criminal <laughs> at the time, which is what you had to do. I lived on the streets of Hollywood. I lived right off, right on Hollywood Boulevard. And at that time, there was, there was things called crash pads kids where in the 60s you could actually people would have houses where you could go and just sleep and and they would sort of it was a hippy dippy very hippy dippy time and i just and i were you the around. youngest person there not at those the places time. not all the time not all the time but i was, but but i was pretty young and then i got i got some straight jobs too but you're living on the streets you're homeless at 15 yes. Obviously, no cell phones, no internet, no nothing. You obviously know your mom's number, if you want to right. call it, from a pay phone, but you don't. She has no idea how to get a hold of you. Right. Does she send the police and APB out no, for you? No, there's no cops looking for me, but there was weird. There was underground newspapers at the time, sort of like L.A. Weekly, where there would be personnel ads, Chris, call home, or something like that. So you the L.A. Free Press, that's what it was called. As a matter of fact, at one time, I used to sell it on a street corner. Um, so you never went into a supermarket and found your picture on a milk carton? No. no, I didn't. So how do you recover from being homeless at 15 and living in crash pads to... Well, it was odd, because I, I got, when I was about, uh, late into being 16, I'd been on the streets for about a year, and I was just uh, kind of hanging out with some rather criminal friends of mine. Oh, this I have to connect this to something. 
because you, you, you asked me what, what I related to when I started thinking about being funny and what funny meant. And did funny have a value? Because that's a, that's a question I ask myself all the time still today. What is the value of funny in the large scheme of things? You know, it's not like, it's not like I'm making bread. You know, it's not, it's not like I'm building a house. You know, I, I'm being a wise ass. And what is the value of that? And, and when I first noticed that there was something really interesting about it was when I was on the street and I wound up crashing at this pad that was run by four drag queens. And there were these, and these four drag queens sort of took me under the wing, under their wing, nothing sexual at all, but they were so funny. Just mean, bitchy queens. And, the, and if you know any, you know there's nobody funnier than being, than being at a party and having someone just a mean, bitchy queen rag on everybody you know. And that's what they did, and they had me hysterical. Now, this comes back to this. I'm out on the street, I'm living with them, I'm with a couple of other people, the cops pull up, it's the middle of the day, they arrest me for truancy in the middle of the day, because I'm obviously young and should be in school. I go, I'm in the Hollywood police station, I won't give them my real name. One of the drag queens was there when I got arrested. She went home. One of the other drag queens put on male drag, put on a suit and tie, and she put on regular full female drag, and they came to the Hollywood police station to try to pretend they were my parents to get me out. It was the sweetest thing in the world. Wow. They tried to pretend that they were my parents to get me out of, uh, to get me out of the Hollywood jail. And the the police would have bought the girl in drag, but the guy couldn't pull off the guy drag <laughs> at all. But uh, um, but that 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 was the first time I thought being funny is a cool thing. I thought it was cool. And the next time is when I saw Where's Papa, which is still one of the funniest movies ever made. Well, I came across it not not having heard anything about it, and I was a kid, and and I went to the movies, and it's uh, uh, about a guy. George Siegel, who's taking care of his senile mother. And all he wants to do is put his mother in a home. He wants her out. And he has a romantic relationship that she interferes with. He has a brother who will not take his mother. But what's written by Robert Kane, I believe, is the name of the writer. They said things and did things like I had never seen. That comedies, it was impolite. And it was impolite comedy, and I had never really seen impolite comedy. I've seen sort of lighthearted, you know, and, and this is cute, and this is funny, and comedy always had a sort of a, you know, a little cute edge to it. And this was just funny, mean, impolite, uh, completely not politically correct, and I was on the floor. And if anybody who's at all a comedy fan, if you haven't seen Where's Papa?, you, you know, you're missing one of the seminal comedies, you know, of the century. So check that out. And so you, you see the movie uh, when you're probably 17 or mm -hmm. so, and now you decide, I like this entertainment business. I like this comedy thing. What's the next step? Well, it's not, it's not like I, I really thought, even though growing up in Hollywood, it's not that I was really all hyped on the entertainment business. I just wanted to sort of get by, you know. I, I just needed some jobs, and 
And uh, I took a job when I was like 18. I took a job at a uh, company that rehabbed homes. And I learned how to do carpentry and plumbing and painting and, uh, uh, and that kind of stuff. And then I went off from there and I got a job working for a plumber. And I was a plumber. And I was making good money as a, as a plumber. At the time, I was making like seven fifty a week, which was huge money to me at the time as a, as a plumber. I wasn't meeting women. That whole, there's sort of a, a porn trope where, you, where the plumber comes to the house and the woman's in the nightgown, and he comes in and starts working on the faucet, and the nightgown falls off her shoulder, and then the next thing you know, they're getting it on. That never happened to me. Mostly my hand was in a toilet pulling out a coat <laughs> So that, And that's not a sexy thing. Okay. But I had this friend. I wasn't meeting girls. And that's, uh, and that's essentially what happened. And I had this friend who was in this acting school. And he was meeting girls hand over fist. He was getting, uh, just getting laid all over the map. And I'm sitting here, and he's completely broke. But he's trying to be an actor. And in this acting school, I'm not meeting any girls. I say, I want to be in this acting school. That sounds like a good thing. And he says, well, you have to audition. And I go, well, but they had just bought a theater. And it was all dilapidated. And they need someone who knew how to do construction, carpentry, plumbing, electrical, who could help them fix their theater. I said, if you don't make me audition, don't charge me to be in the acting school. I will help you rehab your theater. So then I went in, did spend some time in the acting school, met girls, got laid, was fantastic. The one thing that they had in there, though, is they had a comedy improv class. And they, the, the, there was a teacher, her name was Dee Marcus, and, and she taught comedy improv. And I got on stage, and I got it right away. I had it. I knew it. it didn't, it's like I had been doing it my whole life. I got on stage. I was funny. And now, were you continuing working plumbing jobs on the side well, and doing both? I was both? at the time. I, was, I wasn't making any money acting. I wasn't, I weren't making any money. We were just in this class, in this school. But then that group, a group of people from the improv class, split off from the acting school, and we started an improv group called Off the Wall, which still performs today. It's been, it's, I don't know, it's 35, 40 years, or whatever, that they've been... Uh, that they've been performing. and You started it. I and four other people started it. Are any of those and people... Named you named them. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Are any of those people still working today? Yes, they all... They, they mostly all work. They don't work... They're not stars, any of them, but they work... We had stars in it, like, for almost a year, Robin Williams was in the group. So, uh... uh which, which is actually... Here's what a writer is, and here's what an actor is. I worked with Robin for a year. We'd, we'd work totally from audience suggestions. And audience, audience member would raise their hand, and, Rob, and we, I'd go, yeah, you. And he'd go, I want to see two monkeys having a conversation about sex. And I'd go, oh, okay. I would sit on a stool and start doing monkey jokes. Robin would leap off the stage. He'd be on people's tables. He'd be picking up things off the tables, throwing them across the room, pulling his pants down, running around. He's doing all this, and I'm sitting on stage doing monkey jokes. It's very clear. <laughs> Robin's an actor. I'm a writer. And that's, what, and, and that's what happened to me from the improv group, is we were there one night, 
doing a show, and a producer came up to me after the show. And his name is Harvey Miller. He was one of the producers on uh, Odd Couple. And he said, kid, I've got a new show. I want to use you on, your sh on my show. I said, oh, my God, it's my big acting break. He goes, no, you're a terrible actor. I said, well, thank you. He said, but what you're doing on stage is writing. You just don't know it. So now remember, I'm making 750 a week as a plumber. He gives me a job as an apprentice writer for 150 a week. And I took it in a minute. I worked there two days, and I said, this is what I do for a living. And I never looked back. I was never unemployed after that day. This is what a lot of people talk about who are successful in business. They talk about cash, big money versus respect and little money and passion for something that might not pay a lot initially, but you know in your heart, if you just stay the course, that it will pay you more money than you ever thought it could, much more than being, plumbing. Being funny for a living was a lot more attractive than dealing with feces for a living. <laughs> Although sometimes they have been similar. Uh, so what's the next step for you? Where do you go well, there next? There was an intermittent part, just in the in in the backstory. When when I did get arrested, and they uh, and the drag queens came and tried to get me out, they didn't. And then I wound up spending three months here at San Fernando Valley Juvenile Hall, and that's where I that's where I turned seventeen. You did and a three-month stint three months in juvie. San Fernando Valley Juvenile Hall, yeah. That was, again, that was my, that was my higher education. That's, I, I was in the 10th grade. I got credit for the 11th grade for being in juvie, and then never went back to high school. So, Tell our audience, what's it like as a teenager spending three months in a juvenile hall? Take us through the worst of it and also the things that you took from that experience that actually shaped who you are today. I was asked a similar question one time at a, an affiliates luncheon, and it was where they have all the reporters and they do the, and they're asking the questions, and it was on my, was on my bio that I'd been in juvenile hall, and one of the reporters said to me, Chris, is, is there any similarities? Is there anything that helped you prepare for your experiences in juvenile hall? Is there anything that is similar to your experience in network television. And I said, yes, in both instances, I really tried not to be fucked in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that's kind of, that's kind of true. <laughs> and did it, uh, did it work? Not in show business. <laughs> um, tell me the first time you took your first drink and the first time you took your first drug. You know, I always had a propensity for uh, for getting loaded. I started getting loaded when I was probably nine years old. I mean, I started sniffing glue. I started, we used to shoplift glue or spray paint from stores and get high on that. Shoplift at the time, at that time, too, there were cough medicines with codeine in them. You stole Robitussin, and that was just codeine and alcohol, and you get completely wasted on that. I don't know why, because it's really not in my family. I'm not one of those people who is the uh, spawn of alcoholics. But very, very early, I wanted to get out of my head. I just wanted some relief. I just didn't like what went on in my head. It was too dark. It was too painful. I felt bad. I felt ashamed of myself, and so I 
did anything I could to feel different than that. You know, it's not... To people who really take drugs and drink, it's not about feeling better. It's about feeling different. You know, you just don't want to feel what you feel all the time. At the end of the road, when you're taking drugs and drinking, you're never feeling any better. You're just feeling a little different. And that's enough. But when you're nine years old, how do you... What instinct takes you to Robitussin? Well, because there's a 12-year-old who you know, who's your friend, who knows about Robitussin. So he goes and, and tells you about it, and you go, yeah, that sounds great. It's, again, it's the... I, I wasn't happy. I didn't have a good childhood. It wasn't happy. You know, it, it what, was what peripatetic and poor, and, and I didn't feel wanted, and I felt rejected and abandoned, and, you know, I wanted to feel anything else but that. And those were the dark feelings in your head, or oh, were there other dark feelings? I want, no, mostly, mostly those things. You know, mostly a sense of abandonment, of not being, of not being part of, you know, of being that the, all the other kids knew some secret that I didn't know, and I wasn't, uh, uh, I just wasn't up to snuff, you know. And that's that feeling of difference. And because I went to so many schools and moved around so much, the feeling of loneliness, in addition to that, just made me want to be somewhere else. And that, unfortunately, that idea uh, I chased for 50 years from then on. What age do you look in the mirror and you say to yourself, I'm powerless over this? Um, I think I was about 27 when I first said that. And what was the incident that happened that made you say to yourself, I'm powerless over this? I think I lost a gig. I think I had, uh, I think I had gone to a pitch meeting. Um, I can't remember what it was. I think it was at Universal or something. And I had unfortunately arrived at Universal like an hour early and went, uh, uh, and so went across the street to have a few and that turned into four and then I walked into this pitch pitch meeting just half in the bag and everybody knew it and I said well I can't continue to do this this is really going to hurt me professionally and so then that, that was the first time I went to rehab but uh now and you went on your own volition nobody said Chris right, this was me you gotta this go was me making a decision you made the decision on your own and you just went yeah and so how long do you go to rehab for? That that one was the standard 28 days, I think. And so that was in between which projects that you were working on? It might have been during a Laverne and Shirley hiatus. That's what I suspect. Now what's fascinating is that you're working at the highest level. First of all, you're working for Gary Marshall, who it could be argued... I mean, in terms of longevity, I mean, I think the yeah. guy's 84, and, and there isn't anybody who sits around saying bad things about Gary Marshall. No. So you're working for a guy who was a consummate professional, and you were there for seven years. Now, uh, granted, when you work at a place, wherever you work in this world, there's people you notice who work in your profession who are not the model citizens, but they're extraordinary at their work, and people give them a pass. Do you think Gary knew that you were troubled and you were dealing with difficult things, oh, or did you keep well, it hidden? Well, you're talking about a time, though, Barry, that bad behavior 
was looked on as pretty much part of the process. You know, this is the time of of Belushi and the time of uh, of. Uh, actors, and especially in comedy. Well, even The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, you'd watch the show and Ed McMahon would be drunk, Johnny yeah. would be out half in the bag, and Doc Severinsen would be, be craziness. But, uh, you know, uh, I mean, Paramount Studios at that time was... I could go to any stage at Paramount and I knew who to go to to score a blow. It was just known. Everybody did it. It was not, it didn't really have any kind of stigma to it. It was just, yay, we're in Hollywood. We have too much money. Come on, let's go and we'll do this. Now, now some people did that and kept it really together with their professional life. That that would be a weekend thing or we'll go shoot the show and then we'll go back to the dressing rooms and... You know, and we'll do that, do this. Some other people, myself included at times, made it a little more of a lifestyle than as a than than just as a party party kind of uh, uh, drug. So you get out of rehab, and you've done your 28 days. It's the first time you've ever been without a drink or a drug right. in your since you were nine. Right. For 28 days. Right. You walk out of a facility. What are you feeling? Do you feel invincible, like, hey, I'm going to do this, or do you feel like, hey, I'm going right back? No, I certainly didn't feel I was going back. I felt like I, like, uh, I, felt like I, I had conquered it. You know, I felt like the, that's all I needed was 28 days, and then I'll go to a few of these meetings, and, and, uh, but pretty much I'm fixed now. And, you know, and I'd learned some things about myself. And What did you learn? Really what I learned, to be perfectly honest, is I learned that I had very good reasons to drink and get fucked up. <laughs> That's what I learned. I learned, I, I, I learned that, I, you know, uh, it didn't happen by accident. And I had good reasons. And so there was a little bit of smugness that I had, about, you know, about it and said, I, you know, I, God damn it, I deserved all this terrible behavior that I exhibited. Of course, that's ridiculous, but that's kind of where I was at that time. Got it. So you're invincible. Things are going well. You go back to Laverne and Shirley. Right. I go back. I go back to... Uh, and how long do you work. stay sober? A year and six months, I think. That's impressive. And so for those of you who don't realize it, a lot of people look at producers of television and writers of television, and they, a lot of times, what you probably don't realize if you're not in our profession, and it's hard to understand is with the union the way it is, like now, a baby writer, which is the lowest form of writing job you can get on a, let's say, a half-hour sitcom, is over $4,000 a week uh, they get paid. And that's the minimum wage writer. So it's hard to understand when feel sorry for people that they have this kind of workload or the pressures, but the pressures of being a writer and a showrunner and uh, working on a show like that that's successful and Laverne and Shirley, I believe, was the number one show for, I think, three and a half or four years. Yep. It's not getting the number one. It's staying at number one. And so what were you finding were the pressures that made you want to fall again? Well, you know what, what happened is it was, again, it was a kind of a romantic thing. I met my first wife. and uh, uh, Where did you meet her? I, I met her at... Penny Marshall and Carrie Fisher's 
birthday party. They have a mutual birthday party every year because their birthdays are just a couple of days apart. And it's a, it's a very hip party. <laughs> and uh, uh, I met her there. She was there alone? Yes, she was. And you were there alone? Mm-hmm. And they say a woman knows within five minutes of meeting a guy if she's going to be with him. Did she know? No, I don't think so at all. And I, I was the one, I think I asked Penny like the next day or something if she could fix something up where I could, uh, I could see her again. I could see. Her name was Lyndall Hobbs, by the way. She was a direct, She directed Back to the Beach, which I wrote. But, uh, that was Back to the Beach was the uh, get-together, the reprisal of Annette Funicello and, and Frankie yeah. Avalon. It's not my proudest moment, but the check cleared. <laughs> uh, but, uh, no, and then, uh, and then my romantic life, my professional life. You know, a lot of times I, I went to rehab, and, uh, and I've been to rehab a few times. But a lot of times I went, and it was damage control. It was, oh, fuck, everybody hates me right now because, you know, I did a great job producing this show, but I was nasty to people, but I showed up drunk. And in my head, I could operate just as well if I was drunk or loaded as if I wasn't. That's not exactly true, but I could actually operate pretty good <laughs> drunk and loaded. It wasn't terrible. You know, it wasn't like I was just lying in a pool of my own drool on the floor. I could still get stuff done. But things had changed after a while. Things, and I did want to talk about this, is there, there became a time when the same attitudes that existed in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, the attitudes about drug use, about being a bad boy, about being a renegade, about the studios clearing up your messes, you know, uh, about all that. That started to change, and things became... And it had also to do with networks and studios becoming larger conglomerates. And they weren't just a network or just a studio. They also made refrigerators and light bulbs, you know. And so they... they there was a whole different kind of executive that that came into the mix, and the, there was just a, a much larger corporate mentality. And in that in, in that corporate paradigm, the same sort of which I like to refer to myself as a colorful fuck up, the same sort of colorful fuck ups weren't uh, weren't really put up with as much. Although it isn't axiomatic in Hollywood that if you can make them money you can pretty much behave however you want to behave at the end of the day. Used to be we went to a run-through. Like on Laverne and Shirley, there'd be giant fights. Fights with the cast, screaming, fights with the studio, with the network, screaming at each other. There was an executive at Paramount who I loved, who I parted with for a while, named Gary Nardino, and he was the head of television at Paramount. Fat motherfucker. <laughs> and he was just mean as a snake, but he would protect the artist. He was the studio, and the studio, and I was an employee of the studio, not of the network, of the studio. And he would take a bullet for me, with, and he'd scream at the network right along with me. And, and let me, and can I just explain to the audience yeah. so you they, they know? So what happened back then, and what still happens to this day, but not as much, is that there's these studios that produce television. There's the Paramounts. There's the Sony or Columbia TriStars. There's the 
you know, different factions now networks have their own studios like 20th does uh, Fox, but they also do other network stuff. And, and what happens is a lot of these studios, they align themselves with great writers who they see as having enormous potential and they write them a big check and they give them an office and an assistant space and all the refreshments they want, sometimes a bungalow on this on the lot. And they pay them an extraordinary amount of money. And normally that amount of money that that amount of money that they pay them is applied to the work they do. So depending on the lawyer that does their deal, it could be a hundred percent applied, which means that let's say they paid a writer five hundred thousand dollars for a year. And his quote was $50,000 an episode. Okay? So that means that the first 10 episodes he did, he wouldn't get paid for because he's already been paid. And then he would start getting fresh cash. If you had a great attorney, maybe 50% of your money would be applied. So if you got $500,000 and you did 10 episodes, you were making 25 and you were making, you know, extra money. And so Chris was in a deal that was an overall deal at Paramount, and the people that hired him spent a lot of fucking money. And they spent that money because they wanted a guy who was brilliant, who could protect the vision and be successful, and they knew that his vision was going to be a better vision than a network current executive well, that was on there. They also hired you in order to fuck the other studio. You know, I, I mean, Paramount hired you, and you were exclusive. That's why they gave you all that money. One of the reasons they gave you all that money is you could only work for Paramount. You could only, you'd go to any network, but you could only do shows for Paramount. You couldn't develop for anything else, for anyone else. So if you were a hot commodity, they didn't want you going to other studios and making them money. So they gave you extra money just to sit tight at that studio. Those deals are rarely made anymore rarely made anymore but there but there was a period when when they were extremely luxurious and you didn't really have to do much work and so he's fighting for you he's screaming at people right but he's fighting and he's screaming and that was but it was a very at the end of the day we all got back the next day and we had a show to do so we compromised and we decided what can we do we really are passionate. Passion was rewarded. Passion now, because of the corporate attitudes, is not necessarily is not necessarily rewarded. Passion means you're kind of a pain in the ass. Passion means you're kind of off the rails. Passion means you might raise your voice to me. Passion means you're going to argue with me, and I like to think that I'm the big boss. That it wasn't that way. And I tell you, the moment I realized it, and I was doing a show, I can't remember what I was doing what show it was but at the end of a run-through if the network was there it was a network run-through at the end of the run-through the network would go off to their corner and they'd talk about their notes the studio would come over to me and my writers and we'd talk about our notes and we'd talk about how stupid we expected the network notes to be well I was doing this show and that's the way things have been going for years and one day I look up and I'm alone and I look over by the network and the studio guys are with the network. And they are all colluding. They are now deciding what they're going to say to me. And all of a sudden, I didn't have an ally anymore at the studios. The studio's allies were the networks. The studio, the whole corporate culture was the guys in the ties wanted to hang out with the guys in the ties. 
and the guys in the jeans, they didn't want to deal with them because they're crazy. <laughs> and everything changed that day, I, uh, I realized, and it's never been the same since. This is how it works, just so if you're not in the business here, so you understand them, because it is kind of a bizarre process. When you're doing a show, not a single camera show as much as a multi-camera show, and a single camera show might be for those of you who who want to know how it works. Like an arrested development is like a single camera show or like an office. It's shot like a film normally with one camera. That doesn't mean they don't use an extra camera sometimes or do things, but it's a single camera format like a movie. And like an Everybody Loves Raymond or when All in the Family or an I Love Lucy was done with four cameras on a floor and with a live audience. And that's normally the show is that have those network run-throughs where you start and you do the table read on Monday in front of your writers. You get a few notes then, and then you put it up on its feet like it's a play a couple of days later for the first time. Normally the studio comes in first, and then the network comes in a couple of days later. You do another run-through, and the studio and the network is there, and that's what Chris is talking about. And so I want to know, Chris, so when you got notes, I've seen many different ways of people getting notes. I've seen Peter Tolan get notes from Jamie Tarsus and throw his script at her that hit her in the chest and fell to the floor. And he said, listen, why don't you just get another fucking writer? And I've seen other showrunners listen to all the notes and they have all these pages flipped and bent and oh, curled and written and the turned down pages. And I've seen the other showrunners go through the whole process of all the notes, nod, okay, yep, yep, okay. And the thing ends and I would take them aside and say, uh, I don't understand, you, you, you agreed with every note they had. And the person would say, well, yeah, but I'm, I'm not going to do all of them. I mean, what do you think? I'm going to change all the notes? What are they going to do? Fire me? I'm going to do it. And when they see it up and running and see the lines that I want in there to kill, I'll give them a few things. But I'm not going to get in an argument with them here. What's the well, point? How did you handle things? My, my theory, which I, which I learned over time, because I used to be a Tolan. I was a screamer. I once rolled up a script and hit a sensor in the head with it. <laughs> but I, uh, um, but I, and I threw an ashtray and another, another one. But I used to be a screamer. But then I realized there are subtle ways to get what you want done and have them think they've won also. And the thing that I most like to do is find the least objectionable note, the note that does the least possible harm, and praise it extravagantly. <laughs> Tell them it's the best note I've ever heard in my life. I can't believe it. The girl's shoes were red. You said they should be green. How did I miss that? What an <laughs> idiot I was to put her in red shoes. Of course you should have green shoes. You're a genius. You deserve a bigger job than you have right now. Now get up. And that's and and that's that's what I learned to do. And and the other thing, like you talk about the other guys who just not, eighty percent of the notes they're not going to remember they came. You know, they're just they've got three other shows that they've got to go see run throughs at. You know, and they're and they're giving notes at all at all those. And it's not going to be like you're going to have a if you have the network run day run through on Wednesday, it's not like on Thursday the same guys are going to be there saying, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you didn't do this. They're off at another set. 
somewhere. So, you know, I, I, I learned through bruising trials and getting a terrible reputation at times that I didn't have to be a screamer, that I didn't have to be so confrontational. Um, Talk about your worst thing that ever happened to you in terms of a confrontation on a show. What were the circumstances? There was... <laughs> I'm going to name names, too. There was a... Uh, you told me... This is one thing you should know. Before Chris came here, it's very difficult to get a hold of Chris. Literally, it's like you're, you're searching for a Bin Laden and you finally get him. But he told me when he finally reached me, he said, Listen, venti latte, four sugars, I name names. There was an executive at ABC. He's still... I don't know where he is right now. He still has a pretty good job named Ted Harbour. He's the chairman of NBC Universal. Right, right. Now. right. Well, he had a similar job to that at the time, but he was just president of, of NBC television. And I was doing a show called The Naked Truth. With Tay Leone. Tay Leone that I created. And I had taken a script that was a piece of shit that this one writer had, had, had written. I had taken it home and worked by myself uh, till 5 in the morning to get this script into shape, and I'd done a terrific job. I'd called in a favor. I needed a big guest star for something. I called in, I called in, I called Tom Hanks. I said, Tom, come down one day, do the show, you'll do me a solid. Said, Chris, absolutely, do it for you in a second. So now I have, and this is 20 years ago, I have arguably the biggest star in the world in the show. We read the show at the uh, the first table read. Does he come to the table read? Yeah, Ted Harbert's at the table read because um, I think he's a little interested in Taya. But, um, but so Ted's at the table read, and we go through the script, we read through the script, and there's a 12-minute laugh spread. Normally a show would read, let's say, 19, 20, 21 minutes. It stretches a little bit for the laughs that you hear from the people who are listening to it read. Stretches maybe two minutes, three minutes, a killer script, four minutes. This had a 12-minute laugh spread. It was, people were hysterical. Tom Hanks is in it. I'm feeling cocky as all get out. I go up, uh, Ted Harbert, the network is sitting there, come on over for notes. I sit down, I go, I don't know about you, Ted, but that's the funniest single table reading I've ever attended. And Ted Harbert said to me, Chris is funny enough, and now I knew I was in trouble. I knew things were not going to go well from here on out. And I went, I went, well, it's good in a comedy. I know funny's very good. And he goes, well, I don't know. I go, well, well what's wrong? And he goes, I have a problem with the ending. And I said, Ted, what's, what's your problem with the ending? He goes, I don't think that's the ending that the audience expects. And I blow up. And I said, Ted, are you saying we're in danger of surprising the fucking audience? <laughs> <laughs> From then on, Ted didn't come to the table reads. And I lost a lot of promotion on the show. I don't know. See, that's the other thing. It's another reason you usually have to be nice to the network guys because they control <laughs> how much promotion you get. Christopher Titus has a great story where he... He was in a meeting with uh, Gail Levin, and she comes into the meeting and she says, listen, um, I want to bring in an actress to play your mother. And Chris says, do you even watch this fucking show? 
and right then and then it was over. Yeah. And he said that was his forty million dollar mistake. Yeah. But Taya Leone, she ended up being like uh, somebody who you. Uh, I had a uh, uh, Taya Leone and I during the course of making that pilot fell in love with each other, and right after the pilot, we uh, was a little snag in that because I was married at the time. But the uh, but after that, we did uh, we did move in together. We lived together for a year all the way through the first season of that show. And she was like my muse. I mean, I was, I would have done anything. I was gonna stay up for till six o'clock in the morning every night, just because I didn't want her going out there with anything but absolutely first-rate material. But someone I, you know, I, I, I loved and I wanted to take care of. Sometimes you have actors and you just go, you know, I, I really couldn't care less whether, <laughs> whether they uh, love this line or not. But with someone you care about, you know, you go, I want to make everything just super for them. I want to make everything easy and funny, and I want them to feel good about themselves. And that was a great experience. You know, I had, I had a love affair and a television show that I really liked, and uh, uh, they took that away from me, too. <laughs> Do you think your personal life is more difficult than your professional life has been? Um, yeah. I absolutely do. I absolutely do because I, I, I've, you know, I have my, I've always had my demons. I think that, that the way I've lived my personal life has many times gotten in the way of a certain level of, of professional success that I could have attained. I think I succeeded in spite of myself. I mean, I, I, I have always been combative. I've always been slightly unreliable. Uh, I, I've always been, I've, I've always, you know, I, I've never raised my voice to a crew member in my life, but I've had gigantic fights with the people who hire me and the people who give me money to go, to go produce shows, you know, and that's just, that's just who I am. And I think without that kind of fire in the belly, I don't think I would have been able to do some of the stuff that I, that, that I was able to do. I think, on the other hand, had I not been such a pain in the ass, I would be very wealthy today. Did you know you were being a pain in the ass in the moment? Yes. Yes. I, and I couldn't help myself. Uh, it's, it's, I'm just driven. I'm just driven that way. I can't... I, I can sense when it's going to end badly... <laughs> and, and and I will I will continue anyway. Was there ever a network executive or executives that for some reason you just didn't go to that card? You just looked at them and you were like, I can't do it to this guy or girl. The executive I got along with most in my life was Brandon Tartikoff, who ran NBC for a million years. The late Brandon Tartikoff, who was the, the youngest late. television president in history at NBC. Who was a man who loved television, who loved television more than he loved business. And he was a believer in me. He championed me many times. And he, if you gave him a good idea, he would give you quite a bit of rope. You know, and and this was before things were so scrutinized by testing, focus groups, audience sampling, that the executives were allowed to fly a little more by the seat of their pants. And that's what and that's what Brandon did. And if he believed in your show, 
you were going to go get to do your show. You know, my experiences with with him that I really remember were doing pilot. You know, was was, was not doing series that I did. I'm, I've made a I, I've I've done a lot of shows that I get fired off the first season. <laughs> um, that's that's sort of been my mo. Well, how could they fire you off that show if you're in love with the star? Well, unless the did. star breaks up with you. That's kind of that's kind of what happened. That's kind of what happened. We mutually broke up at the end of the uh, at the end of that year. But uh, we do, but it was all amicable. I could have come back to the show, but they didn't want me uh, back at the show. I had a I had some run-ins with Lloyd Braun. There's a name. And Brad Gray, there's a name. Lloyd Braun was a guy who eventually was in a situation where he was one of the co-presidents of ABC and studio there. And also he ran a company with Gail Levin, who yep. was the former president of Fox, together. Brad Gray, of course, managed a young comedian named Gary Shandling and a few others and parlayed his success with those young comics with Bernie Brillstein and created... Brillstein Gray, and then later on went on to run Paramount Studios and the movie side of the company. Tell us about your experiences with those two. It was, again, one of those things like the story I told where all of a sudden the studio wasn't with me anymore. Brillstein Gray was essentially the studio. I uh, uh, it sort of started, I had put together a staff, and there were a couple people on staff who were fairly highly paid, who I hated. I just hated them. I didn't think they were pulling their weight. But you hired them. Uh, well, you can find in this business that you'll hire someone off of a script or two that they've written, and you realize they had nothing to do with those scripts. Because when somebody writes a script for me, I have a writing staff. We talk about a story. They go out and write a script. I may take that script take it home, and totally rewrite it from page one. There's not a word that the original writer had in it, but I don't change their name. I'm not a big sort of script hog like Chuck Lorre. There's another name who arbitrates every script that's written. But I did, but so I'd leave their name on it, and they'd get credit for it. But so sometimes you'll receive scripts. You go, this guy is great, but they were just a staff writer on the show or a co-exec or something like that, and the the real talent of the show, the showrunner, was writing the scripts. So you hire somebody because you think the script is great, but maybe they didn't write it. Maybe it was rewritten. Maybe it had gone through all week with the other writers writing it. I don't know. But sometimes you hire people. Also, it was a recommendation. Oh, this is what sort of happened to me. This started happening to me in my career. They put me with handlers. They often wanted to, like, like they say, we want Chris Thompson because he's really funny and he's a terrific writer, but he's a madman and we need someone to sort of handle him a little bit. We need a Chris Thompson wrangler. So what, what that wound up being was sort of a, a little bit of a people who had kind of boring personalities or, but that the network really got along with. Because they wanted to go talk to them, not with me, because I was a little scary to talk to. And that's not, I'm not tooting my own horn. I was an asshole most of the time, but I was a little scary to talk to. And so they'd rather talk to this other guy and then have him talk to me. 
And so that's why I got on some staffs people who weren't as talented as they might have been able to be. Let's go back to Bosom Buddies and how that came about, how you created it, and the casting process and where you found Tom Hanks. Um, I had come off of Laverne and Shirley. I had left in the middle of like the seventh or eighth season. Uh, it was a very difficult show to work on. The girls were insane. Um, the, there were lots of fights, lots of demands. They were sometimes great, often abusive. Um, and I just had enough. And in the middle of the season, one season, I, uh, I just walked off the stage, got in my car, went home, packed a bag, went to the airport, and took a plane to Tahiti. And we're doing a show on Friday, but I'm in the air going to Tahiti. And they couldn't believe I had done this, that I would have the gall to sort of walk out on them. And, and you uh, were an executive producer at the yeah, time. I was the executive producer at the time and the showrunner. And you were the showrunner at yeah. the time. You got on a plane to Tahiti. Did got you, on a plane and went was to Was there Tahiti. somebody who was a second in charge that yeah. you said take yeah. over? And who was that? I think it was Jeff Franklin. Jeff Franklin Jeff? from Full House? Yeah. Yeah, he's going to be on the show next week. Oh, yeah? That's funny. Say it. Please tell him I said hello. It's one of the few guys who created three shows that went to syndication. Yeah. Jeff's made some money. <laughs> oh, so I went to Tahiti, and they, and I, I got, I, I flew from Tahiti to an island 600 miles below Tahiti called Rangaroa, which is a coral atoll which has like five huts on it. And I was, I'm laying on the beach naked in front of my hut, and a, a, I see a boat out in the lagoon, big sailboat. And then one of those little rubber Zodiac boats gets off the boat and putt-putts right up to the beach, and this Tahitian guy comes up, walks up to me nude on the beach and says, Are you Chris Thompson? <laughs> and I said... <laughs> Who wants to know? And he said, I have Penny Marshall on the ship to shore radio. <laughs> I said, I said, I went to my room. I said, here's $300. You never found me. <laughs> and he went off. But that, that shows the power of television stars in that day and age. They could somehow track me down on an island in Tahiti. Anyway. They wanted me back, but I decided not to. But so then I, I was I laid fallow for a year. Oh, I made a big Paramount deal. I made one of those term deals. And I'm laying around, and uh, I'm just hanging around Paramount and playing golf and not having to do much. And my deals, the end of my deal is coming up, and I've given them almost nothing. And so they, uh, uh, Miller Boyette, who were also the producer, exec producers of. Laverne and Shirley and Happy Days, they were sort of more traditional exec producers. But they came to me and they said, Chris, we want to do like a Some Like It Hot kind of a show. We want to do a show with men in dresses. And I went, okay, this is going to be a one-off pilot, but it'll be great for me because I can just get out, uh, I, can, I can pay off my deal. And so I said, uh, sure, I'll come up with something. So I come up with this idea. I write the pilot. Boom, they pick up the pilot. They love it. Uh, I mean, they pick up the script for Pilot. They love it. So now we're going to cast it. Um, Tom Hanks got cast out of 
New York, there was a woman named Joyce Selznick, maybe, who was a talent scout for ABC, and she would fly, she would go to New York and fly people out to read for pilot season. Tom had never done anything, but they brought him out to read for pilot season. I uh, saw him and I said, yeah, you'll do. <laughs> he was just, just knew it. He just knew he had the stuff. <coughs> and he was with another guy who we fired after two days. And then Scolari was actually working on, Peter Scolari was working on another show and uh, that I had been writing on. And, he, and I said, come do the show with me. And he said, okay. And so we put the two of them together and they made the pilot and it worked great. The guy you fired, did he end up having a career? Not much of one, no. Bosom Buddies, how long did you last on that show and go? That show went, well, we, had, we made 38 episodes of that show. I know it feels like there's 78, because it was on so many times all the time, but we never got an order bigger than six on that show. We made 38 episodes, so... Tell me an actor who you thought was going to be, or an actress who you thought was going to be the biggest star of any show you worked on, and it just never happened. Oh, gosh. You know, there was a guy on Sorota's Court named Ted Ross, who was a, a, a black guy who had played the, the uh, lion in The Wiz on Broadway. I thought he would be very big. Um, but it never quite happened for, for him. If you're running a show and somebody submits a spec script to you that's fantastic, and you meet them, and you know that they have all the qualities that you have in your life that have been detrimental, would you hire them? In a second. Absolutely in a second. Uh, and that, uh, when I started doing this, and it's still true to some extent, if you were a comedy writer... It was because there was something wrong with you. You couldn't do anything else. You had to be you you had to be damaged in some way to to do that job. People who are who can be professionally funny, and by that I mean not that you're funny at a party, but you're funny at Thursday at 2 a.m. when called upon to be funny, when you have to be, because everybody wants to go home. That's professionally funny. And people who are professionally funny and and certainly when I was coming up were people who were damaged inside. Their guts had been chopped up somehow. It's, it it comes, all comes from a place of darkness and insecurity. And if someone came to me dark, insecure, riddled with demons, and could write a joke that made me laugh, I would put them on staff in a red-hot minute, and I would fight for them if anybody else tried to fire them. So... If I were to say to you, listen, you've created the show, it just got picked up, it's staffing season for writers, you have like the almost the NBA draft for writers, they're all out there, every single person, let's say, is available, who's your number one draft pick every time? Who's the writer that you would hire first every time? Jim Valley. And tell us why. Jim Valley is the funniest man in America. Jim Valley is the f best joke man I've ever encountered, and I've been a very good one, and I've worked with very good ones, and he's faster, better, funnier. Only a tenth of it is on paper, because <laughs> most of it is just in the room, pissing your pants, 
while he just goes through his stuff. Jim Valley, absolutely my go-to guy. And Jim Valley, for those comedy historians, about 35 years ago was part of a comedy team called Schmock and Valley, and they were famous for a routine they did on The Tonight Show, King Kong doing the dishes. Yeah. The Funny Boys is actually what they the were funny The Funny Boys. That's right. I actually worked with them when I was a comedian. Are you surprised that you're still alive? Yes. But not as surprised as other people are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, in the, uh, I, I'm 62 right now, and nobody in the pool had 62. <laughs> the pool ended about 38. That's about as high. That was a high number. <laughs> in the, if you got 38 in the pool. No, because you know I've I've I have lived a slightly dissolute life, and and but uh, but you know I sort of have managed to go to the edge and then pull it back. And then go to the edge and pull it back, and that's just how I live my life. And it's, I, I'm not an advocate of it, you know. It's been harder than it's had to be, but it's what happened, and I, you know, I live with it, and and I'm, uh, you know, I'm not ashamed of myself for it, much. Was there ever a point in your life where you did something on a certain occasion, and you, you know, how like when you're driving sometimes and you. You sort of like fall asleep a little bit at the wheel, and you wake up, and you're like, "Holy shit!" If it, I mean, it could have been all over right then. Were there was there ever a time where something was so severe that you were doing that you're like, "I can't believe I lived through this." Well, not that so much. Although you know, I mean, I, I, I've done things that can be considered dangerous and and you know i mean i've i've spent evenings in jail in mexico and you know i've i've been places where i shouldn't have been at times of the morning i shouldn't have been there and i've been hung with people i shouldn't be hanging with but uh, that's all part of the rich panoply of life <laughs> i mean that's just the way i i've i've lived my life and it sometimes i can cocoon up and and not do anything for for months, and then sometimes, you know, I just need to cut loose a little bit. It's 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 harder as I get older. The recovery time is a little different, but uh, but you know, being sober is great. Being loaded is fun. Um, the fact is, if you can do the work, then that trumps everything. If you're, if you're loaded and you can do the work, go ahead and get loaded and do the work. If you need to be sober to do the work, then you better fucking be sober. Because you got to go out there and be funny for money. I mean, that's what we're all trying to do. Uh, and uh, if there's something getting in the way of that, then you've got some work to do. All right, let's do a little word association right. or uh, with with names of actors or people who've been in your life, and just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, Betty White, best blowjob in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> the late Buddy Hackett. Buddy Hackett carried a gun in one boot and a bottle of tequila in the other boot. And at the end of the day, the bottle of tequila was empty. Stay away from the other boot. 
Gary Marshall. Gary Marshall is a mensch who has a darker side that no one knows about. No, he doesn't at all. He's a great guy. The late Robin Williams. Um, quiet and sad when that thing wasn't operating. You know, that thing that he that he had to do, that he was driven to do, and that wasn't operating. He was, he was very quiet, thoughtful, and, and ultimately sad. Whoopi Goldberg. Came on to me in the trailer on Jumpin' Jack Flash, and I think I managed to crawl out the window. <laughs> I'm going to mention somebody who I remember one of the podcasts... Somebody told me that one of their biggest disappointments, and I think it could have been Norman Lear, was that he couldn't figure out how to make a show work with this person. And he was down about it for years, and that was Nancy Walker. Nancy Walker did work, and Macmillan and Wife, she worked, you know, I mean, that was, Nancy Walker was the only person I never knew, had three ne- ever knew, had three network sitcoms on at the same time. She had Macmillan and Wife, The Nancy Walker Show, and Blansky's Beauties all on at the same time. And uh, um, I can understand why, why he would say that, but ultimately I think there was something not – there was a lack of underlying warmth with Nancy Walker, and I think America sensed that. Now a guy who actually is still working, and I just went to a pilot with uh, Sherry O'Terry and him and a bunch of other great actors of all different ages and ranges called Not Safe for Work, Fred Willard. Fred Willard is one of the funniest men I've ever worked with in my life. Half the time I'm not sure if he has a clue why he is funny, um, but but what he, do, what he does... The the there's a great character that I love called a holy fool, and the holy fool is a fool who does not know he's a fool, who do, uh, but who but but who life will bless. For uh, uh, it's like Candide is the holy fool, and and Willard is is like that, and I would not hesitate for a second to put him in anything I did. I'll write special for him, even if he doesn't belong in the show, to put him in it. Harry Anderson. Harry Anderson's kind of an enigma, you know. He's an odd guy. He had a he had a very uh, had a very private life. Even when we were doing Dave's World, lived in New Orleans, I think. And uh, and you know, I never trust anybody who does magic. So, <laughs> Tim Curry. Tim Curry is one of my best friends uh, in in the world. The man can turn a. a uh, a joke can can kill you with an eyebrow raise. He's got one of the most expressive faces uh, uh, I've ever seen. Can be can be can be funny and can and can break your heart. Another guy I'd go out of my way to write for. Jay Moore. Jay Moore was a delight to write for in that I could channel some of the meanest areas of my own body because <laughs> Jay could do them and and sometimes and sometimes Jay could spin a mean line into a way that he was clueless that it was mean he did not that the character not that Jay didn't know because Jay's pretty hip but the, but that the character didn't even know how mean he was 
And his character was great. What he did on that show that was great is he would be surprised when people told him he was a prick. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Richards. Michael Richards was um he was he was a guy I never quite I never quite understood. You know, uh, he um he he's a very old-fashioned kind of comedian. You know, in that he does a lot of body work. There, there's a lot of there's a lot of clown in him. You know, the that uh, uh, that and and I sort of lean to guys who do a little more cerebral stuff than he does. Carol Kane. Well, Carol Kane's a riot. Carol Kane can. Uh, I mean, the, the work she did on Taxi is unbelievably good. Created a character in a language and. Uh, and and hung tight with Andy Kaufman, who was very difficult to work with. Um, you know, Carol Kane's a uh, a genius. Uh, uh, neurotic as all get out, but a genius. Alfred Molina. Alfred Molina is one of the nicest guys I I ever worked with. I wish he would have done that show. I did a show called Ladies Man with him. I wish he would have done it with his own accent, with an English accent, and not with an American accent, because I think it distracted him somewhat. But uh, would work with him again in a minute if he would talk with an English accent. Gary Shandling. Gary Shandling is a man who likes his own way. Uh, uh, it was a very interesting experience working with him. I have a very mean quote, which I'm going to say. Uh, Gary liked to rewrite everything. He liked to rewrite absolutely. It was so hard working as a writer, writing on that show, because he would take everything in a, away, and he and Tolan or he and Apatow would go to his house on the weekend and rewrite the whole thing. And I used to say that it was because if you made Gary lunch and you made him a beautiful pasta primavera, just steaming, beautiful, put it on his desk. And you also put on a, on his desk a plate of his own steaming shit. He would eat his shit because at least he made that himself. <laughs> wow. I've never heard that before. Uh, I'm speechless. Cindy Williams. Cindy Williams has the funniest hands in show business. <laughs> she does. Just Everything she does with her hands is hysterical. Scott Baio. Scott Baio was my idol because he nailed everything in this town. He nailed everything worth nailing in this town. And, uh, uh, and God bless him for it. You think that still happens today? Um, I don't know. I haven't seen Scott in a while. I don't know how he's looking. But in his time, <laughs> he did pretty well. Frankie Avalon. Um, Frankie Evelyn was a lovely man. Uh, um, he was very happy to be working. Pat Morita. Pat Morita. I used to party a little bit with Pat Morita, and goddamn, for a man who weighed about 97 pounds, he could do all right for himself at a party. Janine Garofalo. Janine, I never knew that well. I just, I've, I'm an admirer of uh, of Janine. I, I think that that sometimes she's hip for this, the sake of being hip, and she uh, and uh, um, and I think that's that can be off-putting for an audience. But if she decides to be real funny, she's just one of the best. And Tom Hanks. 
Tom Hanks is a prick. Tom Hanks is one of the meanest men in this town. Uh, owes me money. Um, owes me money. Slapped around my kids once at a birthday party. Leave me alone. Don't even bring up Hanks to me anymore. You're pissing me off now, Kat. All right. I've heard that before. Our final round of questions, and we're out of here. All right. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how it drove you to do something greater and better. Well, I don't know if it drove me to do anything better. One of my biggest disappointments, certainly, is that we weren't able to go forward with action. And, this, and, and you know, we developed action at HBO is where it was developed. And it wound up at Fox through a series of human greed and foibles. But uh, I think if we had kept it at HBO where it really belonged, that the show would still be running today. And uh, it was one of the f most fun, pure writing experiences I've ever had because if you've watched the show, you won't believe it, but nothing on that show is fiction. And, you know, I've never heard you say that before uh, to me. I've heard it said, so that's, that's good to know. Your proudest moment in show business. You know, I don't know that if there's a specific proudest moment in show business, but I've always been very proud that I have treated the people who work with me as if their jobs were the most important jobs in show business. And I've given them that respect. The, uh, not the execs and those pricks, but all the people who work with me in a crew and cast that I've treated them as if their job is the most important job in show business, and I think almost all of them would come and work for me again if I asked them to. I'm sure they would. Last question. What advice do you have for the young performer, actor, comedian out there who's trying to get to the next level and be somebody like a Tom Hanks or a Jay Moore that's cast in one of your shows? that you created and to get to the next level and what advice do you also have for the person out there who wants to be or is working their way up to be an executive in this business on the creative side as a showrunner, creator, writer to get to the level that they need to get to at the top of the heap? Well, I mean, there's two really pretty easy answers to, to each one of those. The best route that I've seen towards being a successful performer in this town is, uh, is the improv groups, is uh, uh, Groundlings, Upright Citizens. Um, those are places where people, not only just from the A teams of those groups, but the, but the B teams and two, uh, I mean also, are pulled out constantly. And not only that, you learn shit, and you learn it really fast. That's what I'd say to a performer is get involved in that kind and in uh, those kind of groups. And besides, the, it'll never not serve you knowing how to do improvisation. To a writer, I would say, I see so many people in this town who write one script and then shop it for two years, and that's just ridiculous. If you're a writer, you've got to write. So write one script, shop it for a week, and then put the next piece of paper in the typewriter. That shows how old I am. <laughs> but turn on the computer and start writing the next piece. And then shop that. And you'll get better each time you write one. And eventually one will hit. And you know what's great when one hits and you've got like four others behind it? 
those other scripts become hot too. And you've already written them and you can sell them. But, the, but just don't sit on a script as if you had the only idea that anybody in town ever had. Because ideas are a dime a dozen. And unless you can execute, you're just not going to work in this town. Chris Thompson, this has been the most unique podcast episode that I've ever done since I've been doing this. It's been honest. It's been cutting edge. And it's been everything you are, which is brilliant. I thank you very much, my friend. Thank you, Barry. As always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you didn't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.